0: John chapter 8. This morning's message is entitled A Spiritual Paternity Test. Spiritual paternity test having to do with fatherhood. It's interesting. There's a, there's a question commonly asked in counseling settings by both secular counselors, Christian counselors, biblical counselors. And the question is: what is your father like? Or Describe your relationship with your father when, when trying to get, a know, get to know a counselee and trying to understand them and what makes them tick. It's a really helpful question to ask because there's arguably no more, no more influential relationship in a person's life than their relationship with their father. And of course, over the years, as I've asked that question of people. I've heard all sorts of stories and gotten to know people and the intimacy kind of with people. In terms of the real stuff, real stuff people have been through with their fathers and that relationship. And, and another fascinating thing I've noticed in those conversations is that everyone has a concept, everyone has an ideal of what a good father would be like. Everybody just kind of has that understanding, whether or not they had a good relationship with their father, whether or not they would say their father was a good person, either way. Everyone seems to have some concept of what a good father would be like. And if I were to ask you, hey, what would be some attributes of a good father? You'd probably tell me things like, well, he'd be a provider, a protector, sacrificial, loving, kind. Maybe you'd say a good father would be a teacher or a disciplinarian in some way. In obviously a healthy way or a non-abusive way, but a disciplinarian. You have this concept of what a good father would be like. We all do. And in terms of what shapes us in life, in so many areas, whether it be something as simple as our, our manners, our work ethic, sometimes our political views, even our view of God himself can be shaped in some way by our relationship with our father and the character or attributes of our father. That's something that's just sort of wired into this world, something that... That God did when He created us in His image. And we know, of course, as believers, we know that God is our Heavenly Father. He is the highest Father figure. We know that. And we know that He is the perfect Father. So that whether you had a, a good relationship with your Father or not, you have a not so good relationship. The experience you've had with your father in one way or another points you to God. If it was a good relationship, those good qualities, they point you to God in that he is the ultimate. He embodies those good qualities in the greatest sense, with perfection. And all of us would say, our earthly fathers, I'm a dad, I'm not perfect. You're, you dads, you're not perfect. Even those who are quote-unquote good fathers, not perfect. So both the good qualities point to God, but then also the, the deficiencies and the weaknesses and even the flaws and the sins They too point us to God in that they point us to the difference between God and us in terms of our fallenness, our humanity, our brokenness. The fatherhood of God is an extremely important idea, and it's found all throughout Scripture. And it's amazing how it comes to light here in this conversation between Jesus and the religious Jews. We're going to continue walking through John chapter 8, where Jesus is interacting with them and in some ways arguing with them seeking to persuade them that He is in fact the Messiah and that they come to know God as Father most clearly through Him. Not apart from Him, not in rejecting Him, not in continuing to sit in scrutiny sort of over Him or judgment over Him or being suspicious of Him, but in embracing Him, in trusting Him, there is this full, clarified picture of what God the Father is really like. So that's what we're going to consider this morning as we walk through. Read again with me the passage, verse 37 through 44. And we'll consider two big ideas here in terms of this spiritual paternity test. All right. So beginning in verse 37, again, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? Is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So stop there two big ideas here in terms of the spiritual paternity test that we're going to consider this morning number one the indications of the fatherhood of the devil in our lives that is in our sort of fallen nature okay and number two indications of the fatherhood of god in our lives as christians we believe in of course a personal god and we also believe in a personal devil okay that there's a real being who created by god the devil, Satan, different terms that are used for him, different names for him, but we believe there's a personal devil. It's interesting if you listen to scholars out there, secular scholars, atheists, agnostic people, though they reject the personhood of God and the personhood of the devil, it's interesting that you still hear ideals in terms of authority figures. You still hear that people have a sense, kind of like we talked about earlier with regard to a father, people still have a sense of what a good authority figure is like and a bad authority figure is like. Well, the Bible gives us the basis for all that. It gives us the ultimate foundation for all that, which is there are spiritual beings beyond our material world. There's a creator God, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign over all, And there is a created being, Satan, who is a deceiver, who is an enslaver, who is out to destroy. That these concepts that we live with in this world have a transcendent connection. So this morning's text points us to these realities of the personhood of God as Father and the alternative fatherhood of Satan. His authority. His way of thinking, his mode of operation. So let's talk about these indications of the fatherhood of the evil one. Notice in verse 44, the last verse I read, strong statement, especially strong statement for Jesus to say this to religious people. He says, you're of your father the devil. And that's a shocking statement, an extremely offensive statement. You're of your father, the devil. And throughout the passage, he's addressing this as he builds up to that statement in verse 44. So as we back up and move back through, notice how it begins with this discussion again regarding Abraham. He came up earlier in there, back and forth, earlier in the chapter. They continue to look to Abraham as their their forefather, and they take pride in their ethnic pedigree, and they feel good about that. They're confident. They They are Jewish people. They believe they're God's people. They're children of God. They feel good about that because of that natural connection, that lineage. And Jesus challenges that. He also challenges their claim to be God's children. It's kind of like he's saying, Yeah, you're, well, yeah, you're descendants of Abraham, but you're also kind of not. <laughs> yeah, you're you're God's children, but you're also kind of not God's children. Which again, it's a pretty strong thing to say to a religious community. But as we've been seeing all along, as he probes, as he cuts through all the superficial and cuts right down to the heart, he's trying to get at where they really, the, the essence of their heart attitude, what they really think, what they really believe, because he knows that inside, though the outside has been polished up, inside they're empty, inside they're dead. This this evangelistic crusade penetrating into the deepest parts of their hearts, and he questions this superficial connection. He says, you're not really what you think you are. Maybe naturally speaking, the sense of Abraham, sure, it's true, but spiritually there's something missing. For us to understand this, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. This is where the Apostle Paul gives his diagnosis. Paul's like this theological cardiologist, this heart specialist, and Romans is the place where he gives this clear diagnosis of the human heart. Turn to Romans 2, and we're going to look at verses 17 through 25 here, and I want you just to... Hear what I read and and think carefully about this. What Paul is saying about these religious Jews and the essence of their ignorance. What they were missing. Why they missed their Messiah. Notice what he says. But if you bear the name Jew, and he means if you proudly bear the name Jew, and you rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law, And are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you not dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision, or your heritage, is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, that was a mouthful. But all that Paul is saying there is basically the same thing Jesus has been saying in John chapter 8. In last week's passage, he was talking to them about the truth which sets free. And he's basically saying, Look, you're all deceived and you're enslaved. And in order to prove that, he says, those who commit sin are slaves of sin. It's like his way of saying, look, yes, you're religious. Yes, you've managed to clean up the outside in some ways, but you cannot deny, with the gaze of God upon you, you cannot deny religious people that you too are sinners, that you too are lawbreakers. That's just the truth. And so Jesus' way of saying it was, he who commits sin is a slave of sin. And he's trying to appeal to these religious people to admit that, to accept that reality, to say, yes, it's true. I'm fallen, I'm natural, and though I have these religious commitments and these rituals that I participate in, I'm still lost, I'm still fallen, and I need God's grace. That's what he was appealing to them regarding, and Paul is doing the same thing here. He's saying, look, you're, you're apt to take pride in your pedigree and in your circumcision, which is another way of saying your heritage and Abraham and all that you have in your past. You, you want to take pride in these fleshly external realities, but those are not what really is of value in terms of spiritual things, in terms of God's economy that has no value. Even though it's in the name of God, even though it's regarding the law of God, it has no value when it comes to spiritual life. It's empty. It's empty. And so Paul points out the hypocrisy. Hey, you're still lawbreakers. You're inconsistent. You're hypocritical. And Jesus and John 8 is saying the same thing. And then one more verse here in Romans 2 before we turn back to John 8 and park there for a little longer. But Romans 2, verse 29. As he follows along the logic, he concludes with this thought, verse 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter or by the law. And his praise is not from men, but from God. In man's economy, we are enamored with externals. We love externals. We love titles. We love measurement systems. We love accolades and all of that. Badges and trophies and big impressive titles. And this gospel just levels the playing field and says you all are equally in need. You're all lawbreakers. You're all in need of the grace of God. You're all in need of the truth of God. You're all, we are all to one degree or another still because of that fallenness. Even as followers of Jesus, there still remains that flesh. As one reformer said, we are all partial unbelievers till the day we die, until we're home, until faith comes beca- uh, faith becomes sight. We still have this part of us that's blinded, that's deceived. And so we're being invited to accept that, to agree with God regarding that, and to, and to long for His truth and His light and His life, and to know that spiritual life and spiritual heritage begins there, not with these externals, not even with our track record, or our performance, even our moral performance, though that's important. And though there are consequences for immorality, from a spiritual perspective, vertically speaking, it is all about relationship with God through grace. It is all about where He meets us in our emptiness, our need, our lies, our enslavement. And He meets us there to rescue us. So they had confidence in Abraham and their connection with him ethnically and and even in their religious practices. They were missing something and Jesus was appealing to them. And he says to them, and we mentioned it earlier, but in verse 44, you are of your father the devil. That's what it really boils down to. The the devil is not afraid of religion. The the devil loves religion. (laughs) It's, It's like the choicest tool in his toolbox to keep people deceived. Sure, come into this community Sure, say you believe in God. Sure, dedicate yourself to this book. Sure, practice the traditions and the rituals. Sure, clean up the outside. Do those things, sure. But inside, notice his attributes. This is what he is like, and this is what, naturally speaking, apart from the grace of God, this is where we would, too, also be stuck. This is what he is like. In verse 44, we can just pick out some of the attributes. It says, uh, you want to do the desires of your father so, that, so the devil is lustful, greedy, as he's controlling desires, always driven for more, not content with his position. And remember, in the Old Testament, when it talks about the devil's ascent, it's this kind of mutiny, the devil and demons seeking to ascend, seeking to, to take the place of the Most High God, wanting to be on top and having these governing desires, these enslaving desires, right? Right? So the devil is lustful and he says you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. You too are just driven by your cravings and lusts. And, and who among us can say that oh, we're free from those? No, no, I don't have any of those. We all have those. It's the reason we're so apt to get irritated, angry, frustrated, afraid. In counseling we, also, we often talk about flipping your fears. When we talk about, okay, we think about the things that we're afraid of. What's on the other side of that? Why are we afraid of what we're afraid of? In our own personal lives, in our own families, in our community, in our country, in our world, the things that we're so afraid of, flip it around. What is it that we're holding on to? What is it that we're clinging to? What is it we feel like we need? It's those desires, right? We're all driven by desires. And to one degree, that's healthy. That's what propels us through life. That's what gives us ambition. That's why we can accomplish things. And that's good. That's part of being created in God's image being made to be productive creatures, that's good, but there's also this fine line between a healthy desire and an inordinate desire, a desire that becomes controlling and enslaving and destructive, and we all are touched, we all have that within us, in that fallen part of us, it's all still there. And so Jesus is here appealing to them and saying, recognize where that comes from, recognize the False authority, the counterfeit authority over that system, that way. It goes back to the evil one. It's his way. You're of your father, the devil. It's not about some image of a scary devil with like a red costume and the, you know, the little horns and the pitchfork. It's, the, it's an ideology. It's a way of thinking. It's a value system. It begins and ends with me and how things affect me and me trying to get what I want and never quite getting enough. It's that. And so another attribute or characteristic that goes along with that, he says he was a murderer from the beginning. James 4 says the beginning of all conflict with other people is lust. And he says that that too, it, it, it amounts to either uh, psychological mental warfare where we put people to death in our minds Well, I'm through with that person, or literally the outworking of murder, Actual ta- actually taking another person's life. It's all related to that lust and lust. Satan is the embodiment of that. He's the murderer, capital M. He's the, he's the killer. And he was from the beginning. And he wants to take as many down with him as he can. He's a murderer. And he's a liar, it says. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the Father of lies. It's the father of lies, happy to keep everyone deceived. Even and this is where it's important for us and you notice this is kind of my pattern. I want us just to think about ourselves so that we might be freshly touched by the grace of God. We've got to acknowledge, yeah, there's still areas in which I believe lies. We talked about that last week. In whatever areas we're enslaved, enslaved to our anxiety, enslaved to our anger, enslaved to our resentment toward others. Slave to our discontentment, slave to our lack of gratitude, whatever it might be, that there's areas of blindness where we're not seeing. There's deception. And so, we can acknowledge that goes back to the evil one. It all began with him. It's the same old. Dog eat dog world system of performing, comparing, competing, desiring, using, hating, fighting. Yeah, that's the devil's way, and it's it's the world's way, isn't it? I and mean, it's something that's still seductively at work within us individually. And I've had I've talked to um, many over the years, many atheists and agnostics. I have friends who who are not believers, and we have these interesting conversations. Sometimes friendly debates, sometimes not as friendly, but most of the time friendly. I like them to be friendly. But one of the things that comes up, well, okay, so you Christians, so you're supposed to be so loving, so why all the church splits and why the gazillion different denominations and sects and all that stuff? And for a long time, I didn't really have a good response for that. But the response now is like, hey, look, the fact that we're believers, it's not about boasting in these externals because we just talked about, that's, that's kind of the... The way of thinking is, well, Abraham is our father, and we're not enslaved to anyone, and we know, and we're guides to the blind, and we, we know the truth, and we tell other people, they're the ones with the problem, not us. No, 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 that's not, like, that's not what Christianity is all about. Now, it's often presented that way, and even spread around that way, but that's not what it's all about. Remember, Paul says, we are those who have no confidence in the flesh, but our boasting is in who alone. It's in Christ alone. Hey, it's not about me. It's about him. Paul said, hey, this is the reason the Gentiles blaspheme all the time. You're giving them more fuel for the fire because you're such blatant hypocrites. So just be honest about it and say, hey, it's not about me, it's about him. Satan's system would be to elevate man. Loves to elevate man. Loves it when we all are drawn to some politician or some leader who just seems to be, even even religiously, some pastor, And and what happens? Lo and behold, seemingly, inevitably, something comes out, some scandal And we're like, oh, dashed expectations. Oh, what I thought was the case wasn't really the case. Yeah, because there's one Savior. (laughs) And He's upholding Himself here, and He's appealing to these religious people see who I am, believe in me. The devil is a liar, He's a murderer. Religion is not the answer. Religion can be just a new environment in which the same old game is played. Same old game of performing, comparing, scorekeeping, competing, desiring, using, hating, fighting, splitting. We need another authority figure. We need a higher authority figure. We need a better authority figure. We need our God. And so let's go back through the passage and see the indications here of the fatherhood of God in our lives. And this is where, as Paul talks about, the, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's something within us that cries out, yes, that's my, that's my father. That's my good father. That's my real father. And so let's just think about these indications of the fatherhood of God in our lives Again, Jesus playing off on this reference to Abraham, he says, hey, look, this is what it would really amount to. This is what like, spiritual lineage would look like, continuing in his word. He said it earlier in last week's passage where he says, if you're truly my disciples, you'll continue in my words, back in th- verse 31. In today's passage, he says it in verse 37, kind of by inference, where he says, you say you know, you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me, which is pretty extreme. Because my word has no place in you. Which by implication is saying, because you're not continuing in my word. Because my word isn't dominant in your mindset. Because you are, in some sense, blind to it. And what is his word? We've been seeing it throughout John's Gospel. What is his word? Did he come simply just reiterating the law and saying, well, this is what you need to do. This is how, well, sometimes he said, Let's, let's play off of this one. One time, one of the religious leaders came to him. I think it was one of the lawyers. And said, what must, I have, what must I do to have life? And Jesus says, well, how do you understand the commandments? And I may be conflating here, but this is the general idea. Okay, He says, basically, well, I, I know that I'm to love God and to love my neighbor. And Jesus says, well, go do that and you will live. Oh, if, life is, if spiritual life is up to you then go and do everything perfectly. Love God, love your neighbor, and all the details of that. Go do it all perfectly, and you'll live. And deluded, deceived, the man went away with that mindset and endeavored to do that. But the point of that was not to just send him off on his way. The point of that was that he might see, you know what, I I can't. I can't do that. I don't have that within me. Bingo. And so Jesus presents himself throughout John's gospel where he says, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's coming up in John chapter 14 later. We have seen where he said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the water of life. I'm the light of life. I mean, do do you see the recurring theme here? I'm life. I'm life. I'm life. I'm life. Not rituals. Not traditions. Not externals. Me. A relationship with me. Putting your trust in me. Seeing yourself like the, the broken people, the the lepers, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, seeing yourself, seeing myself as one of those people, hey, you know what, I don't have any—I anything to commend myself to you, Jesus. I don't have a contribution here. Hey, if I give you a little bit, then you give me the rest. No, I, I come with nothing. Simply saying, you life, I need you. You're the only way back to God. And that, Jesus is here pointing out, That is what it means to be a true descendant of Abraham, spiritually speaking. Turn over to Galatians. This is one last cross-reference from Paul here. Turn over to Galatians. In chapter 3, Jesus back there in John 8 said, Hey, if you're you're really Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. What are the deeds of Abraham? Look at Galatians 3, verses 6-9. through Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer." So you see, faith is the issue. This is why back in John 6, Jesus said, this is, you want to do, because the religious people there said, "Hey, we want to, what do, how do we do the works of God? He said, you want to do the works of God? Here's the work of God. Believe. Believe in the one he has sent. Believe, 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 believe in me. See me as the sum and substance of all that you need and all that you're looking for. See me as life. See me as your only hope. Spiritually speaking, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the cleansing of your sins, for reconciliation with your Creator God, for the only hope you could ever have of everlasting life, of resurrection, going on into the future. It's the only source. And in Galatians, Paul says that's what it means to be a true child of Abraham, is to be a believer. To see Abraham as the father of faith, not just ethnically speaking, but spiritually speaking. Do you see that? So that even today or in the future, when Jewish people come to believe in Christ, that's kind of like a twofold Abrahamic lineage. And the most important part of that is the spiritual part of that, is embracing Christ by faith. And how is that like Abraham? In fact, they're saying here that look, it's interesting, they're they're wanting to kill Jesus. Over and over, he's saying, why are you seeking to kill me? You're seeking to kill me. They want to murder him. Again, it's all part of their being of their father, the devil, who's a murderer from the beginning, right? They're wanting to kill him. And yet, at the same time, claiming this Abrahamic lineage. And Jesus says, don't you see the irony here? In fact, later in John chapter 8, you can turn back there. Later in John chapter 8, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He wouldn't be opposing me. Now you scratch your head, wait a minute, how did Abraham see Jesus' day? That Jesus wasn't there with Abraham in the way that he was there with these people at this time? And yet, wasn't it true that all that God communicated to Abraham, all that Abraham believed, wasn't it regarding all these provisions? Wasn't it regarding Abraham's livelihood? and multiplication, all these images of life, all these representations and manifestations of life, Abraham believed that God could do what he could not do. That God could bring life from death. Even to the point where God says, offer your son Isaac. And Abraham reluctantly, and I'm sure struggling through it, goes up, takes his son Isaac up to offer him as a sacrifice. Confounded and confused, no doubt. And then God does what? He provides a substitute. All that pointing forward to Jesus and to Jesus' day, and he's saying here, hey, I'm in your midst. I'm right here, and you're seeking to kill me. So you may be ethnically a child of Abraham, but spiritually speaking, you're not. Not unless you come to me, not unless you believe, not unless you embrace my word, not unless you see yourself as completely and utterly in need and as a recipient of life by grace. That is what it means to be a descendant of Abraham, in essence, spiritually speaking, and to put the other term on it, that is what it really means to be a Christian. We use the the measurables. We use the external standards. It's good that we have standards. It's good, just for a moment, to say it's good that we have laws. Our society would be in a heap of trouble without them. For the curbing of the flesh, it's absolutely necessary. But when it comes to God's economy and spiritual realities... There are only two options counterfeit righteousness, manufactured righteousness of our doing, which is external, which is empty, which betrays. There still are those realities of the fatherhood of Satan of lust and desire and greed and hiding and hypocrisy and, and competition and murder, all that stuff still there. There's that option, and then there's the true righteousness of Jesus. There's embracing him by faith. There's believing in him, trusting in him, and trusting that the Spirit will generate life. The Spirit will generate love and joy and peace and all of his fruits by faith. Do you see the difference? Efforts, works versus faith. Christ is here inviting people to faith. That's why this gospel ends With John saying, all these things I wrote that you might see, that you might believe that Jesus is your Messiah, and that believing you might have life through him. That's what all this is about. It's singular in its focus. So to think again about these indications of the fatherhood of God, it would involve continuing in his word, embracing his word. Yielding to His Word, listening to His Word, receiving His Word, doing the deeds of Abraham, beginning with faith. And yes, faith has outworkings as James addresses in the New Testament. But it begins with this understanding that God is the God of life. Spiritual life begins with with Him. And and it would also amount to um, kind of obvious an indication of the fatherhood of God in our lives, the paternity of God in our lives, would be um, not seeking to kill Jesus. Obviously, as we see in verse 37 and verse 40, that they were, that they were motivated to do. And then lastly here, um, I just want you to notice this. Look at verse 42, again, where he says, If God were your father, you would love me. Th- this is what it looks like to be a true descendant of Abraham, is to love Jesus, to love him, to see him as that provision, to be amazed by his extension of grace to you. For him to see you in your brokenness, in your emptiness, in your need, in your ugliest parts. the Parts that make even your family members run away from you or not want anything to do with you sometimes. Those parts that we all have. To see you at your worst and to offer you his best. This is the gospel. This is who our God is. This is what he offers us. This is the way back to God. This is the way to the fatherhood of God. To see most clearly who our father is. To understand his heart with greatest clarity. Which is why in John 14, remember this? Remember Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you now say, show us the Father? In living color, he says, I am The clearest manifestation of the Father. The heart of the Father on display. A provider. A sacrificial provider. Merciful, gracious, kind, just. A disciplinarian. In all the perfection of those attributes. Not with the same human distortions and perversions that we know. But with perfection. You may have heard. There's a. There's a song going viral right now at the top of the charts, and it's written by a, otherwise a, a nobody. He sings under the name Oliver Anthony. That's not his actual name. I think it's a, a grandfather's name. He takes this name, Oliver Anthony. And the song is called Rich Men North of Richmond, in which he is putting out there his feelings about politics and specifically politicians. And the song has gone crazy, like wildfire. I mean, millions upon millions upon millions of views, and it's interesting because he has these big label companies, country music companies, trying to sign him, and he keeps stiff-arming him and saying, nope, not interested, for million, like millions and millions of dollars, turning them away, which is interesting. He's just this common guy. He's just kind of this everyman type of guy. And he sings this song, Rich Men, North of Richmond, which is speaking of like Washington, DC, north of Richmond, the, the the rich, powerful elites who live there. And the question's being asked: why is this guy who's from the middle of nowhere, no one's ever heard of this guy? I mean, he's talented, definitely talented, he's clever, he's got a good voice, but I mean he has no nothing like that would give him this kind of platform. So how do we account for it? And they're saying he just he's just resonating with like everybody. People are listening to him and he's putting words to and, and feeling to what other people are feeling. And so it's super popular. Not for kids, by the way, but if you listen to it, okay? But it's you, you can't help but hear about it because it's everywhere on the news and all the podcasters are talking about it. Isn't it fascinating that something like that can, can spread like wildfire, all having to do with this deep sense that, There's an abuse of authority that takes place in this world. There's a certain abuse of power that takes place and we all know that it's sick and it's not good. Everybody knows that. What's unfortunate is and where the gospel meets us in this place is the gospel tells us yes and you if you were given that power and that authority. You know the statement? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. If you or I had that much power, and to whatever degree we do have power and influence, we all at times take advantage. We all at times exploit others. This is our human stuff from which we are made. On one hand, that message resonates, and we all say, yeah, forget the politicians. They're corrupt. They're abusers. They just want to control you. That's what the lyrics of the song are about. They just want to control you take advantage of you we all know that and we all know there's there's like an ideal of what an authority figure should be like and and to really to to put a fine point on it we all know what a what a true father should be like at least to some extent we know and the bible Presents a God who is that true Father, that good good Father, that good good authority figure. Jesus as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. King of Kings with a capital K, Lord of Lords capital L. Like the one who is truly righteous. The one you're never. Some news item is never going to come out and say, "Well, did you hear what he did? Taking advantage of that person or that young lady or those finances or this or that." You're not going to hear that of him. Everyone else, you could. You probably will at some point. To include even the guy singing the song right now that everyone's loving. Flawed, broken individual. That's what we have in this world. And we need a higher authority. And in Christ, we have that higher authority. And in His Word, we have His communication to us. And we have His hope granted to us and the promise of His kingdom in which righteousness will dwell and we wait for it. In the meantime we got laws, we can vote, we do things like that, and we ought to, and we should, and that's something to be thankful for, but we're waiting. We're waiting for the ultimate kingdom. We're waiting for perfection. We're waiting for true righteousness to appear, to touch down in this world, and isn't that going to be amazing when that happens? Amen. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? That's what our world needs It's what God, through His Word, has communicated to us and has given us truth, has given us evidence, and has cracked open His chest and shown us His heart. And I'll end on this note. In John 10, verse 10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And we see Christ going to the cross, laying his life down, dying sacrificially so that we might get all the benefit, so that it all might come to us, undeserved, received with gratitude, a gift of grace, a gift of life, relationship with God here and now, hope for eternity. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And it's reminders this morning, Lord, as we walk around in this world, and as we're honest with ourselves, we know how deeply flawed we are. That even as your, your children who have been awakened to the realities of your truth and your love and your greatness, we still sin. And there are innumerable ways in which we sin. At the same time, we know that we've been forgiven, covered, provided for, that we're accepted in the Beloved. Even as we sung about earlier this morning that we are as loved by you as your Son is loved by you. And that is amazing. And it's because we're in Him. United with Him. In a living union. Awakened to the reality of your kindness and your goodness. The the, the true substance that goes so much deeper than just the, the rituals and the traditions and the routines. It's so much more substantial even than just external morals but clarity in the heart having received from you our creator life of which you are the source thank you for turning our hearts back toward you as our good heavenly father lord thank you for the gift of authority figures governing authority figures father figures Thank you for the gift these men are and, and, and women in certain capacities are. Thank you for the gift of, of leadership and, and also thank you, God, for making it clear to us that leaders will always fail in some way. There will always be shortcomings. There will always be exploitation. There will always be hypocrisy because we wait for Jesus, the true King, our Messiah. Thank you that our Messiah is both the sovereign Lord of the universe and a loving, gracious merciful Savior willing to come and meet us in the middle of our simple, small, broken, messy lives. Thank you, God, for loving us. Praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.